Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Lilith and Adam are in the garden, and Lilith gets upset because she wants to, and the text says, be on top. And some people try to interpret this figuratively as a, an authority question. I think it is far more likely that this is a reference to sexual positions, mm. that Lilith wants to be on top, and Adam says, you are not fit to be on top. I am the only one who is fit to be on top. And this would align with the long-standing notion that the only sexual position appropriate for a man is the dominant one, and the only sexual position appropriate for a woman is the submissive one. And so for a woman to be on top throws a wrench into the social hierarchy and dogs and cats running wild. It's pandemonium. I'm forgetting the Ghostbusters Mass hysteria! Mass hysteria, yeah. Hey, everybody. I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we try to increase the public's access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How are you doing today, Dan? I am doing fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well, although a tinge of regret. Someone told me that we really uh, missed out on an opportunity to call our last our, uh, episode 12, There's Something About Mary. <laughs> so, uh, well, that that's true. We could have done it. Uh, we we missed it. I, you know, I did title it after uh, something that Elizabeth Schrader said in the show. So yeah. I, I, I yeah. thought I was at least honoring her with with that title. Yeah. Uh but you know, we 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 miss opportunities all the time. That's uh, that's part of life. We take yep. we we get some. We win some. We lose some. Coming up on this week's show. Uh, we're going to be talking about a, uh, a a famous and infamous lady uh, mm-hmm. first, and then we're delving later into some of your personal uh, work, some some work that 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 you have a lot of experience with. Yeah, I, uh, I'm going to do a, a, a what does that mean segment on uh, the word steely, uh, which I use every now and then, and I can count on getting a dozen references to Steely Dan. I was going to um, say every time <laughs> I say that word, um, and and some people say Stila, and then for plural they say Steely. Mm. Uh, I say uh, Steely for the singular and Steely for the plural. So S T E L E is that what we're saying? S T E L E, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. we'll get to that uh, later on in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for now, let's do our first segment. Who's that? We're going to talk about uh, someone, a name that appears, I think, only once One time. in the Bible, mm-hmm. if it appears at all in your version. It might not appear in your <laughs> version whatsoever, um, but it, it, it's a person slash thing slash who knows what. Well, hopefully, Dan, you know what. Um, we'll see. Uh, it has been, it has become... 
an icon of uh of, of kind of fem the modern feminism this person mm -hmm. uh will people of a certain age you and i included dan will recall that back in the 90s uh singer sarah mclaughlin named an entire festival after uh, a music festival after <laughs> after this person so uh who is or what is lilith yeah, let's get into it. Uh, and speaking of Sarah McLaughlin, a huge fan, by the way. Um, <laughs> if I had uh, if I had the money or the time or the know-how back in the '90s when I was in high school, I would have loved to have uh, uh, have gone to Lilith <laughs> Fair. If if you're listening, Sarah McLaughlin, call us. <laughs> She's not. She's got much better things to do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Lilith. So. Um, well, we only have one passage in all the Bible that has anything at all to say about Lilith, and that passage is in Isaiah 34, uh, in verse 14. And here we're talking about a, a threat of destruction to Israel, um, and part of this threat is to say, basically, I'm going to turn you into a deserted land, a land that's going to be inhabited by a bunch of creatures that are associated with uh, the wilderness, associated with uh, a lack of habitation, a lack of civilization. So uh, in the NRSV, it says, wildcats shall meet with hyenas, goat demons shall call to each other, and there too Lilith shall repose. And uh, the word in Hebrew there is Lilith. Um, and most scholars will tell you that uh, this comes from a term in Akkadian, so from Mesopotamia, that ultimately uh, derives from a Sumerian word. So it's probably a borrowing into Akkadian from the Sumerian, which is a very different language from Akkadian. Um, and uh, I think the KJV renders screech owl, doesn't it? Yeah, the KJV says, uh, let's see, yes, uh, it's so different. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow. The screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. Yeah, so they, it doesn't sound like they had a great idea what to do with Lilith, uh, no. the, only, the only time it occurs there. But it... Seems to I, NIV, by the way, the uh, the New International Version. Oh, yeah, what does render, that say? Renders it as uh, the night creatures will also lie down and find for themselves places to rest. Night creatures, night the creatures. Night creatures. <laughs> um, <clears throat> oh, I just realized uh, we. <laughs> I probably shouldn't sing stuff because no, no. Um, because we might run into copyright. Nobody issues. report us. Yeah, I'm, that um, was you, that was for satirical purposes only. Yeah, and obviously I changed the lyrics, but right. um, <laughs> the uh, the New English translation, the NET, has nocturnal animals. Whoa! So not, I think I saw yeah. that movie. That's a really interesting. <laughs> um, with Nev Campbell from yeah, uh, something like that. Something like that. So when we go into Acadian, we find these these terms that seem to refer to an entire class of uh, some kind of demon or entity that is associated with uh, stormy winds and with the nighttime hmm. and uh, with kind of predatory behavior as well as deviant sexuality. 
So there's a there's a feminine dimension of what's going on here, but kind of like all those things, everything you just mentioned. <laughs> this is I'm, like I'm kind this of a is fan. Your jam, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> the, you are vibing. Um, and uh, so in this literature, which spans many many centuries, there's not a ton of consistency. So we can't really nail it down to one specific thing. We can just speak in broad terms about the different ways that uh, it pops up. Uh, and when we get to some of the feminine aspects of it, this is a, a some kind of uh, creature or female entity that uh, does not have a husband uh, or seeks to ensnare uh, men or um, husbands. Um, and so it's kind of a, a, a deviant, aberrant sexuality. And so these are creatures that you are worried about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what uh, they're trying to get across in Isaiah 34. This is uh, somebody that you really want to keep outside the walls of your city. Yeah, don't and, don't let her take her rest there. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Very dangerous. Yeah. And, um, oh, it reminds me of... Uh, uh, of a time when we, uh, I was in Beersheba, um, and I was walking, uh, through a, one of the little, um, streets, quote unquote streets of the, the ruins of Beersheba. And a fox darted across the path right in front of me and into a little hole right <laughs> under like, uh, the ruins of a, of a little wall of a house or something like that. And, uh, it reminded me of, uh, somewhere else. Uh, what is it? No, it's actually in the New Testament. Foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. Oh. Um, but <clears throat> but uh, I kind of uh, thought of this area. These ruins were now places where foxes were making their, their dens. Very similar idea that this is going to be a place where it's uninhabitable by humans, and it's inhabited by these creatures that occupy the periphery of mm. civilization. You have this kind of idea of center and periphery that is very influential in the way they think about the world anciently, where uh, the city, inside the city wall, that is kind of the height of civilization. That's where uh, the the best people live. That's where the temple is. That's what's considered the center of humanity, human civilization. And then the further away you get from the city and the city walls and human habitation, the closer you get to kind of the unknown and dangerous boundaries uh, of what is out there. And so that's where demons dwell. And yeah, that's I've where seen, I've seen Mad Max. I know how. <laughs> and that's where um, that's where all the kind of unknown, kind of fuzzy creatures that uh, you don't really want to be around hang out. Um, and so uh, that's where they're going to put these demons, the the satyr as uh, as the KJV calls it, or the goat. I think goat demons, as the NRSV puts it. And I then gotta you gotta love the goat demons, man. <laughs> and that's where you put Lilith. Yeah. Um, and even, uh, even in, uh, in the Pentateuch, when it talks about the, uh, the scapegoat, this is the goat for Azazel, who is another demonic figure. And where do you take the goat to send it off to Azazel? Out into the desert, because the uninhabited region, you know, habitation is, is kind of corresponds to proximity to deity. Mm. Uh, and then the further away you get, the more uh, you get the other half of the divine world, the the um, malevolent half. And it, once you get to the sea, then you also have a similar situation where the sea is is chaotic, and that's where you know that's where ships get wrecked, that's where people drown, that's where things go wrong. So yeah. um, you have order and chaos, center periphery, 
uh, civilization, uninhabitable land. And so it, how how do we get from a screech owl in uh, or 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 and or some sort of demon, uh, you know, thing? I, I guess you're you're gonna you're gonna get us to feminist icon at some <laughs> yeah, point, right? Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna get us there. Um, <laughs> but the next thing um, to note is that uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Great Isaiah Scroll, it's not Lilith, it's Liliths, it's plural, and so oh, wow, uh, yeah the the name is uh, Liliot, so that's the the plural of the name, and then the verb. Uh, is in the plural, which suggests that kind of uh, as a callback to how it originally worked in the Akkadian language, that this was more of a category of entity, not a single entity, but a category. Right. Um, <clears throat> now, when we get into early Jewish exegesis of the text, one of the things that the uh, early rabbis and the earlier uh, and the early exegetes or interpreters of the Hebrew Bible tried to do is find meaning in everything. And so they needed to find out what these words meant, and they wanted to kind of uh, associate it with something that would make it uh, significant. With this, it's kind of difficult. But there was a reading of Genesis uh, in early Jewish interpretation that set the stage for Lilith to become relevant several centuries down the road. And that reading had to do with how the early rabbis reconciled the two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. And we, and we talked about this in, in our very first episode. But That's right. you've got two different creation accounts. And Christians today try to harmonize these in a lot of different ways. Oh, one was the, um, you know, the spiritual creation. The other was the physical creation. One was a broad outline. One was more detailed. One was the 30,000 foot view. One was only a bunch of different ways to try to harmonize this. Right. One way that some early Jewish interpreters tried to harmonize this was to suggest there were two creations. And in the first creation, you had uh, man and woman, uh, or there are two references to creation. In the first one, you had man and woman created at the exact same time. Right. But in the second one, the human is created first and the woman is created afterwards. Right. And so one way to reconcile this is to say that when they were first created, Adam had a wife who was created uh, at the exact same time as him. And then we've got this other woman who's created subsequently. And so this must be Eve is Adam's second wife. And so as, Genesis as, 1... As, as a friend of mine once put it, uh, that becomes the first uh, rolling out of the McRib. <laughs> uh, there, there are layers to that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so the, uh, there arose this tradition, not a majority tradition, but a tradition that Adam was created uh, simultaneously with a first wife and then there was a second wife that was made, and that second wife was Eve. And so that then leads to the question for later exegetes, who on earth was this first wife? Yeah. And we get in a text called the Alphabet of Ben Sirah, which was written sometime between around 700 CE and around 1000 CE. We get a text that links Lilith with Adam's first wife and suggests that according to this interpretation that has Eve as Adam's second wife, the first wife was Lilith. I take it that this alphabet of Ben Sirah was not a children's book. <laughs> no, 
No, it was uh, it was not a picture book. It was a chapter book. It was all words. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> now in medieval Judaism, the Lilith had become somewhat of a, a succubus, a one of these demons that kind of afflicts, particularly men, particularly um, their sexuality, causes mm. problems for them, uh, but can also cause problems for newborn babies. And in the alphabet of Ben Sira, we have a bit of an etiology for this character as a succubus. In the story, uh, Lilith and Adam are in the garden, and Lilith gets upset because she wants to, and the text says, be on top. And some people, uh, so they uh, try to interpret this figuratively as a an authority question. I think it is far more likely that this is a reference to sexual positions. Mm. That Lilith wants to be on top, and Adam says, "You are not fit to be on top. I am the only one who is fit to be on top." And this would align with the long-standing notion that the only sexual position appropriate for a man is the dominant one, and the only sexual position appropriate for a woman is the submissive one. And so for a woman to be on top throws a wrench into the social hierarchy and dogs and cats running wild. It's <laughs> pandemonium. I'm forgetting the Ghostbusters Mass hysteria. Mass on. hysteria, yeah. So... um and we can go all the way back to ancient Mesopotamian texts from 1000 BCE that talk about how if uh, a man is on the bottom, that it robs him of his masculinity and his vitality. Um, and we can go to, uh, there's an early Jewish text. I'm blanking on what it is at the moment, but it talks about how if a man is uh, takes the bottom position in sex with his own wife, uh, it will give him diarrhea. Um, and <laughs> there's a notion that it, it renders That's one amazing. Yeah. Um, it, it renders one ritually impure. Yeah. Um, and so this is, this is a, an ideology that exists for thousands of years. And it's reflected in this idea that Lilith is like, no, I want to be on top. And Adam's like, we can't, can't do this. That's um, absurd. Yeah. What kind of household am I running here? Um, <laughs> <clears throat> it is so amazing. She... It is amazing that the alpha male, the ori the only male at the time, <laughs> had alpha male ideals about uh, sexual <laughs> positions. But there yeah, you go. well, and it kind kind of shows you that these are are characters that are used to tell stories about our ourself. Right. Um, and so she gets upset and she storms out of the Garden of Eden and she just takes off. Um, and and God. Uh, is told about this, is not happy with this, and so sends three angels after Lilith to convince her to return to the Garden of Eden. And um, they catch up with her, and they say, hey, what's going on? Um, you need to come back to the Garden of Eden. And she's not having it. Um, and these three angels are Sinoi, Sansinoi, and Simangalof. <laughs> and yes, those are great names. Yeah. Um, and what Lilith tells them is, I'm not coming back. I am going to go be a succubus. I'm going to go afflict men. I'm going to go afflict newborn babies. I'm going to cause illness. I'm going to cause death among newborns. And the only way you can stop me is if a newborn baby is wearing an amulet that has your three names on it. And if wow. I see that amulet, I will have no power over 
that newborn, that infant. Weird that she put her own strictures on herself. Like, yeah, uh, that seems that seems like an odd thing to do if you're <laughs> yeah. gonna just if you're in an afflicting mood. Don't you know? Don't make rules that you have to follow. That just yeah, seems just weird. don't just arbitrarily limit yourself. <laughs> so um, so most likely this story is an etiology for why people were using amulets with maybe these three angels' names on them: Sanoi, Sansanoi, and Samangalov. Uh, maybe they didn't have their their name. Which, on by them, the but... way, beautiful names. If you're if you're considering naming your baby, <laughs> uh, I think. If you're not going to name them Dan, which obviously you should, uh, that's the easy. Go go with Samanshalov or whatever you just said. <laughs> Samangalov, yeah. And um, so this was this was likely a practice that was uh, going on at the time: the use of apotropaic amulets to ward off evil, um, and specifically the evil that is uh, the succubus Lilith, who uh, would cause illness and death. Uh, in newborns, and there was which, probably... by the way, was so common in the era. Like you know, newborn death and 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 uh, miscarriage was fully like a third of children, wasn't it? Um, pregnancy, something, something along those lines. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it's changed over time, but certainly it's not until the modern era that uh, that infant mortality has dropped significantly, which right. is one of the main contributors to our huge populations. Uh, these days. It's the biggest but, um, mistake we've made as a species. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, a lot of people, when they when they look at life expectancy in the ancient world, they're like, yeah, every, you live to a, an age of 40. Uh, it's like, no, um, infant mortality drags <laughs> that right. average down. But you, in, in, even in the ancient world, if someone survived to adulthood, most likely they were going to live to be 60 or 70 or something like that. Right. So um, the life expectancy Wait, you, has not I changed. I think you mean 969. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll do that on another show. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I get I get asked about that all the time. People are like, yeah. were they, did they mean months? No. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. All right, so we've got Lilith. 
We uh, she she has uh, she is going to afflict all of the children. Uh, she has made a she has made a deal with the angels that their names can protect them. I guess I you know it makes sense to me that this woman who you know was meant to be brought in at least in this story, which is non biblical again, uh, but this story where she's Adam's first wife and she's she refuses to subject herself to this sort of patriarchal notion that she is uh she is not equal to this man in some way mm-hmm. and that he has to dominate her yeah i'm starting to see sarah mclaughlin's point <laughs> yeah yeah you you can see how someone like this would become an icon for uh for femininity now there are there are pieces of misinformation in circulation out there. Some people will argue that the original version of Genesis talked about Adam's first wife as Lilith or something Mm. like that. And there are no data that support that. This is a much later tradition that's building on not just earlier accounts of Genesis, but uh, medieval interpretive traditions regarding the accounts of the creation and is kind of extrapolating and elaborating uh, on those traditions to create this story of Adam having a first wife named Lilith. So yeah. that's something that that idea is created somewhere in that window between around 700 CE and 1000 CE. So only a little over a thousand years old. And the reason that it became sorry, I'm just I'm trying to piece this together. This uh, this alphabet of of whoever, sorry, Ben Sira, Ben Sira, is taking uh you know is is taking the exegesis of the difference between the two creation stories mm-hmm. and inserting this already existing concept of but vague and not quote not well understood idea of a evil night spirit a succubus or whatever and saying let's create an origin story for both basically yeah does that sound like a fair representation of what you're saying yeah i think so it's it's taking the the blocks that are around them and just building something new out of them yeah which is what is so often the case with the texts that are in the Bible and the texts that are next to the Bible and that inform the Bible. And, and you know, it, it makes sense because uh, these texts that become authoritative or these traditions that become authoritative, they're not going to gain any traction, any purchase, if they're just totally out of left field. Mm. And they have no relationship whatsoever to what's already going on in the discourse. And so that's why you pluck from the existing discourse to... To find the building blocks for these ideas that you want to uh, to forward, and that way, once that new idea is out there, it's new in some sense, but in another sense, it's appealing to things that people already understand and have accepted and are already in widespread circulation. And that's how you build a tradition that's going to become popular and is going to last. Uh, if you come out of you know again of left field with something that has no relationship to what people are talking about, it's only going to have the novelty and that's going to wear off pretty quickly. And so um, you'll find a lot of these extra biblical traditions and even a lot of biblical traditions are just incremental elaborations on stuff that is already out there. Um, and sometimes it takes on a life of its own uh, and, and people confuse it for the original uh, idea. 
Well, I mean, if you want to uh, to wrangle Jewel and Lisa Loeb uh, and and get them to rally around a cause, sounds like uh, sounds like Adam's first wife is a is a good is as good a one as any. Man, you're I'm I have I feel all these restrictions on me now because I want <laughs> I want to quote a bunch of song lyrics. Suddenly, <laughs> I'm like. I probably shouldn't do that. So don't get get us into any more trouble than we're already in. (laughs) All right. Well, there you go. Lilith, uh, as the screech owl, uh, which I'm sure that, you know, some people, some people might say that about some of those, uh, some of those singers that I just mentioned, but no, uh, what I think that's a really cool, uh, little tradition there. Yeah, it it is interesting. I think it's it's important to know the origins of that, since that tradition kind of has some traction um, on social media, and uh, and I, I think it's interesting to know why it has informed this uh, kind of feminist approach to uh, to the creation account in Genesis and the origins of uh, of Adam's wife. But yeah, it's definitely something that comes much later down the line and originates in this ancient. Uh, Mesopotamian tradition about some kind of rather amorphous uh, demonic spirit of some kind associated with the nighttime, with the winds, and with a deviant kind of sexuality. And if you would like an amulet for your child, please <laughs> go to our webpage where it's in our merch <laughs> section. We don't have a merch section yet. We'll come up with one soon. Anyway, uh, that's great. Let's move on to our next segment. All right, let's do it. Well, Steely Dan, uh, <laughs> talk to us. Uh, what's that mean? We, what's we've that got, mean? We're, we're looking into uh, we're we're looking into the Steelies. You 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 teased it before. Yep. Talk to us. What what do we got here? So uh, I use this word a lot, Steely, in uh, mainly in my writing, but also in some of the uh, some of the social media content that I put out there. And it, it's basically a standing stone. The Hebrew word here is matzavah, and the plural is matzavot. And when you see in your translation of the Bible a reference to a pillar, sometimes it will be standing stone, sometimes it will be pillar. Um, I can't imagine anybody is translating steely. But um, this is uh, a steely. This is an upright stone. Uh, it is sometimes carved, sometimes as it is found naturally, but it is something that is taller than it is wide. Frequently, uh, and in the periods of uh, the composition of the Hebrew Bible, uh, almost all the time, it had a flat front, and then the back was usually rounded or angled or something like that. And the hmm. and that flat front would be the face of uh this steely. And this could be used for a number, well, not a number, a few different purposes. Now, we begin to find these in the area of the Levant or ancient Southwest Asia or uh, Israel-Palestine way back in um, the Neolithic period. And they're kind of scattered around the deserts. And archaeologists uh, identify two different uses for steely, which is the way I refer to the plural of steely. Uh, One use is as a commemorative marker for a burial. Um, So it's very similar. And in fact, uh, in many ways, uh, looks almost exactly the same as a contemporary headstone that you might Mm. see in a cemetery. You also find them uh, in the Neolithic period in 
groups in arrangements that indicate to uh, many archaeologists uh, that they are there to represent or presence, give presence to, manifest the presence of deities. Um, now, I've argued in in my book that there's actually some overlap between these two different uses that the concepts of or the concept of deities is very closely related to concepts of deceased ancestors these are unseen imagined agents and when i say imagined agents i'm referring to agents that we cannot see but can only engage with with our minds and so mm. this is not to say fake made up uh, fairy tale agents. It's to say it's the exact same thing as talking about the United States of America. It's something that you cannot see or touch or smell or taste. It's something that you um, conjure up in your mind. Um, and so these imagined agents, uh, they are able to interact with people. And one of the main, main ways people try to interact with them uh, is by offering things like food and water and light and shelter in exchange for uh, maybe not hurting them, maybe protection, maybe information about what's happening in the future. Now, these kinds of interactions take place with regard to deceased ancestors as well as with regards to deities. Um, and when you find these standing stones, sometimes they're set up in mortuary chapels, the little rooms that are designed for people to go and engage with their deceased kin. So uh, they might go there annually and have a feast with the person. Uh, they might go there to um, recite their name so that their memory continues on, so that their, their afterlife is extended. Uh, they might go there to uh, petition them for help, leave what are known as little votive offerings, uh, little objects intended to remind the deceased ancestor of them or something like that. And we see the exact same kinds of behaviors in temples where you sure. go to have a feast, where you go to appeal to them for, um, for protection or for aid and where you go to recite their name. And so the difference between ancestors and deities is, uh, is not a very clear one anciently. So there are a lot of similarities between the way these things functioned in relation to deities as well as in relation to ancestors. And there was an interesting discovery uh, from 2008 that shines a lot more light on uh, the overlap and the way these things worked. There was a stele that was discovered that had uh, a drawing and an inscription on it. And the drawing was of a deceased person who was holding up some stuff and they're in front of a table with some pita bread and some duck and things like that on it. And they're holding a pine cone and a bowl. But the inscription is the really cool part. It identifies, it says, I am Katumua who made this stele. And it is basically a prescription for what kinds of offerings should be given to the stele in their mortuary chapel uh, on a regular basis. And it refers to <clears throat> uh, giving these things to my nefesh, which can be somewhat uncomfortably translated as my soul, which is in this stele. Oh, wow. That. So okay, somehow these the steely has become the the receptacle for the the eternal nature of this person. Yeah, and and 
we see very similar ideas at work in most of the mortuary practices around this area. We see it in Mesopotamia. We see it in Anatolia. We see it in Egypt, where somehow the deceased's something, spirit, soul, whatever you want to call it, it's conceptualized in a variety of different ways. But somehow this thing is hanging around Mm. and you engage with it by creating some kind of material media to house it. And that becomes the index and the medium for engaging with it. So, and this, this Katumua stele is kind of making explicit this idea that my soul is going to reside in this stele. And so put the food right in front of it. Put Give the me right in front of pine it. cones. Yeah. <laughs> Pine cones and bowls and ducks with the head still on. And I, I need some... a duck and a pine cone, or I'm going to be mad. <laughs> Get in here. Take the cannoli. Um, <laughs> and <clears throat> but and and this steely is very much shaped like a contemporary headstone. Can you give me the size? How tall are we talking? Um, they're they're different sizes. Some of them might only be uh, like a foot high. So okay. the the earlier in time you get, the smaller they they tended to be. Uh, but the the Katumua one is probably, I th- if I recall correctly, about a meter high. It might oh, wow. be shorter than that. Um, but when you um, I have spoken uh, about the Judahite temple at Arad, and if you go there, you can see a stele set up, and you can actually enter the Holy of Holies. It's a reconstruction, and the stele and the two incense altars are uh, replicas. They're not the originals, which are in display in the Israel Museum. And so, like, there's not a rope. You can walk up into it. You can stand on the incense altars. You can- You can um, give it a duck. You can touch the the standing stone. Yeah, if you want to, you know, I'm I'm sure no one would notice if you went up and poured some oil on it or something like that, and bring a pine cone. Who knows? Rubbed his head for luck. Yeah, um, <clears throat> but it, and that's about a meter high as well, and about a foot and a half wide. Interesting. Okay. Um, and and one thing I I pointed out in my book is this is not unrelated to the way we engage with headstones today. Because um, you see it in movies, you see it in TV shows. Maybe some people who are listening have had the experience of talking to a headstone, visiting a cemetery. And because the headstone is kind of the only thing you have to focus your attention on, and maybe the name on the headstone, that kind of becomes the medium for communication. That becomes right. the uh, the object that represents the presence or the agency of the deceased loved one. Even um, if it's just metaphorical, it's just a stand-in for that person yeah. so that you can process whatever you need to as you... I have been no... I spoke to a, a headstone of my grand, my grandparents' headstone at one point. Yeah. I didn't anticipate that I was going to do that, but I was, <laughs> it was there. Yeah. And I, and I was having thoughts and I just thought, you know, I'll just speak them to this to this headstone. And it, it's it's cognitively natural because we want to have some kind of material media to represent these imagined agents that are that are uh you know in the world around us according yeah. to our perception um you know sometimes people will just look up and just talk to the sky but if you've got something that has the person's name on it maybe even a picture of it of them excuse me um it's just it just feels kind of natural to do that and so we treat headstones 
in many ways, just like they treated uh, Steli anciently, and not just for deceased kin, but it's the exact same thing for deities. They conceptualize the deity as inhabiting this steely the exact same way that Katumua conceptualized his headstone as his uh, eternal inhabitation. Um, and so in, in my book, Adonai's Divine Images, A Cognitive Approach, I make the argument that the cognitive motivations are the same and that the concept of divine images and particularly steely builds on the exact same cognitive foundation as our engagement with headstones today and as ancient uh, engagement with headstones uh, as kind of the habitation, the home of the deity. And even uh, in the Hebrew Bible, we have a reference to uh, Jacob refers to this place as Bethel, which means house of God. And in the Greek transliteration, we have Betil. And Betil in ancient Greek became a noun that meant a steely. Oh. And so Jacob, when he talks about this will be the house of God, not saying this region, he's saying this object that I have set up and that I have anointed will be where God will dwell. Um, and so this is, it's all interrelated. Um, yeah, to, that's kind of crazy that this, I mean, yeah, you think of house of God and you think of a building or you think of a, a you know, a structure or something, but you don't think of it as, as being like a thing inhabited by like, like an object that is literally, that is literally inhabited by God. That's fascinating. Yeah. I think so too. Um, and there are, are other ways that we see this kind of bubbling to the surface in, in places in the Bible. And, and one of my favorites is the fact that standing stones seem to be a perfectly legitimate divine image in very, very early literary layers in the Hebrew Bible. We have standing stones set up. We have a standing stone that we discovered in a Judahite temple. Like this is divine images were in use in the first temple period. They represented Adonai. They represented the God of Israel. And then in the exilic period, we have a transition where we have some stories about Moses and Joshua being commanded to write the words of the law on standing stones. And then they, um, and then they offer worship and uh, burn offerings before Adonai. Um, in other words, they're kind of combining the words of the law with the standing stone that represents uh, or that reifies the presence of manifest the presence of the God of Israel. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire, enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. 
Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And then, so this is kind of overlaying the law on the standing stone. And the law has God's name repeated on it a number of in a number of times. In fact, the very first words of the Decalogue are Ani Adonai, I am Adonai, right. I am the Lord. And so just like Katumua says, I am Katumua, here's my stone, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments say, I am Adonai, here are my laws. And what are they written on, according to the tradition of Moses and Sinai? Tablets. Right. Stone. Which are many standing stones. So we go from Moses and Joshua writing the law on the big full-size standing stones that allow us to worship God to this commandment, hey, Moses, write the words of the law on itty-bitty standing stones. Travel size. Travel size. It, <laughs> precisely. Because what does that do? That allows you to put them in the Ark of the Covenant and then carry them around. So they're not limited to a building that can't move. We can now mobilize the divine image. And we have numerous examples of what are called uh, model shrines. Uh, from the ancient world and from ancient Israel and from Israelite locations. And a model shrine is a miniaturized temple where you put a mini divine image inside and that miniaturizes, mobilizes, and personalizes the divine space and the divine image. And so I argue that the Ark of the Covenant, which is treated precisely as a divine image in several places in the Bible, uh, is exactly a model shrine or a shrine model. And the miniature, the tablets, the miniature standing stones are miniature divine images. So that, it becomes almost a, almost a little, uh, it's a temple unto itself. Yeah. And if you're on the move, you can take it with you. If your army is going out to battle, you can trot your divine image, your God, out before you. So in 1 Samuel 4, when the Israelites are going to battle against the Philistines, they trot out the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines say, God is in their camp. And you have Moses uh, in the book of Numbers, it talks about uh, in the morning, they, uh, you know, Adonai would come out with the, with the Ark, and in the evening, I would they would put Adonai back uh, huh. in the temple. And it's basically treating the 
the presence and the movement of the Ark of the Covenant as um, isometric with God's own presence and movement. Wow. And so it's it's doing the exact same thing that uh, divine images uh, prior to uh, the exile and divine images in the nations around Israel did. Only in this transition, we move away from standing stones. We have the full-size standing stones, then we have the law, and we have miniature standing stones with the law, and then we have no standing stones, and we just have the law. But the law still has the divine name on it. And so if you go to a synagogue today and you look at the very front, they're probably going to have a, a, um, a cabinet of some kind that's been richly decorated, and they open up that cabinet, and you have the scrolls of the law. And you know what they call that cabinet? I they don't. call it the Ark. Oh, interesting. Because, yeah, this, this holds the text of the law. And so, Go ahead. So, sorry, I just... the uh, So... I, I know that in Jewish tradition, the writing of the name of God uh, or, or the speaking of the name of God is a sacred thing. It is a very, like, you're not supposed to, you don't do it under under most circumstances. Yeah. So I'm taking that to, I, you know, you're you emphasizing that, that the name of Adonai is written on these things. That That is, that is of great import yeah. in this tradition. Yeah, the, the name materializing the name, whether materializing it vocally, anciently and, and um, kind of uh, intuitively, speech is a type of uh, materialization. Um, it brings something and, into and, being. And literally as well. We're moving um, particles, um, well, waves. Uh, and so if you are writing or are speaking the name of God, there is a sense in which you are invoking God's presence or manifesting God's presence. Because uh, on the standing stone, there were ceremonies that you would go through to enliven the standing stone. So in Mesopotamia and in Egypt, you had the washing of the mouth ceremony and you had the opening of the mouth ceremony. And it was basically like this divine image's mouth is now open. It can breathe. It is alive. The uh, agency, however, that is conceptualized of the deity has now entered into the divine image and the divine image is enlivened. Um, and so there were ceremonies that did that and inscribing the name was a, an integral part of the ceremony because the name was considered one of the main vehicles for agency. And so to speak the name, to write the name was to materialize it. And in a sense, was to invoke that presence and was to manifest that presence. And this is why um, one of the, the cool things that we saw in the Israel Museum were two little silver scrolls. One of them's about almost four inches long. The other one's only a little over an inch long and, and about half an inch wide. And the other one's about an inch wide. They're called the Ketaf Henom silver scrolls. And they have a version of uh, the priestly blessing on them. But the divine name is is written a handful of times on there, and these scrolls were, excuse me, found rolled up tight and buried with somebody, and they probably would have been an amulet that that person wore in their lifetime, and they were buried with, and the amulet probably had apotropaic functions, or it functioned to ward off evil, much like the amulets of Sanoi, Sanstanoi, and Simangalov, the names 
allowed the amulet to be activated, to have that power. And so the divine name allowed those little amulets to ward off evil. Wow. And so the speaking, the writing, the name in some sense was like creating a little mini divine image, was creating something that could manifest God's presence. And so outside the temple, you weren't supposed to do that. And the destruct once the temple's destroyed, there is no place where it's appropriate to do that. And so uh, there are a lot of ways that um, the Torah scrolls and Torah manuscripts are treated like divine images. You have to go through certain procedures in order to create it. Uh, once it has been created, you have to go through certain procedures if you have to dispose of it. Uh, and the divine name is treated particularly carefully in the creation and the disposal of these texts. And so uh, the one of the things I conclude in, in the book is that in many ways, we didn't, uh, they didn't outlaw all divine images. They just renegotiated what a divine image was. And it went from a big stone that you had in your Holy of Holies in the temple to the text of the Torah. And this is why even Christians today, many of them will treat their Bible as somehow metaphysically special. Like yeah. this brings God's presence. And when I read it, I can feel the spirit of God, the presence of God. That's exactly how a divine image functioned. A divine image wasn't necessarily for worship. It could be for worship, but the primary function, the overarching function, was to facilitate God's presence. And so if you are looking at your Bible, if you're reading your Bible to facilitate God's presence, you're doing the exact same thing with your Bible that they did anciently with divine images. Now, I'm going to I'm going to keep our conversation in the uh since since we already have been uh, uh playing around with feminism uh, in this episode. Uh-huh. Uh you know, when I was doing some research uh before our interview with Francesca Savracopulo mm -hmm. who who talked to us about Ashra there's a whole thing about Ashra poles. Is, mm -hmm. Now, I would these be similar in in uh, to 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 this idea of a standing stone, of a stele, of a whatever? Uh, you know, is is it the same kind of concept? So it's it's a related concept. Um, <clears throat> in some of the earlier periods and some of the larger empires, they had a lot more flexibility and they had a larger market and they had a lot more resources to be able to create divine images of all different shapes and sizes. So some of them were anthropomorphic statues. Uh, some of them were crowns. Uh, some of them were thrones. Uh, you had a lot of different ways to create divine images. Uh, bronze bulls that we found in, in Israel from the Bronze Age are examples as well. And so an Asherah would have been a kind of stylized tree. And we have some, the handful of drawings of these. Uh, the Tanakh cult stand is an example of a cult stand that stands about three feet high. That is, there's an argument to make that this is a species of um, shrine model. And on it, it shows a stylized date palm. So a trunk and then some kind of branches that curl off of it. And on e either side are feeding ibexes. And this is also drawn on um, a, a, a large pot, a pithos from Kuntiladaj Rud that is largely uh, understood by scholars to be uh, a symbol that represents Asherah. So one of the interesting things, there's a, there's a scholar named uh, Reinen Eichler. Uh, I think he's an Israeli scholar, but he published a paper a little bit ago 
that said, isn't it interesting that in the Ark of the Covenant, we have perhaps two mini uh, standing stones, two divine images. Do you recall, Dan, uh, maybe maybe you don't, this is kind of a trivia question, what else was put into the Ark of the Covenant at different periods? I'm trying to remember my Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh... <laughs> So there were there were two other things that were said to go in the in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, some of the mana, the the manna, which mm. is not important here. But the other thing was Aaron's budding staff. Oh, that's right. Yes, I do remember the that staff that had flowers growing out of the top of it, which Eichler argues sounds suspiciously like an Asherah pole. Yeah, and was put in the shrine model with the other mini divine images. And his argument is that the whole story of, oh, look, the staff magically budded and that's how we could tell who was in charge was a secondary creation as kind of a, what is that doing in there? Uh, <laughs> like a, an etiology for the presence of a uh, an Asherah pole in the oh, Ark of the wow. Covenant. And so, yeah, it is very much a, a related concept that this that this pole could have um, been a piece of material media that helped facilitate access to the presence of the goddess. And there's something um, very interesting about the idea of laying an Asherah pole next to these tablets that end up being a, a, an image of uh, Adonai. Of Adonai. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that's a... That's a very interesting idea. <laughs> well, that's why. So we've got the. I, I mentioned the uh, the pithos that has the drawing of the stylized date palm and the ibexes, very similar to um, Asherah. The other side of the pithos has the two anthropomorphic figures with the inscription above it that refers to Adonai and Asherah. And so the association of Adonai and Asherah there is. Uh, is pretty clear. One one other thing that I find interesting is we've got another very early um, iconographic depiction of two ibexes feeding on either side of a tree. However, rather than that stylized date palm, that tree is the menorah. Oh, it is a a uh, a trunk, and then three branches that kind of swoop down and then up on the other side. Okay. Uh, seven branched menorah. Um and so um the and that's called the Lakish Ewer, that that uh that piece of art. It has an inscription, it's dedication to uh to the goddess, it says. But um I haven't seen much. I haven't seen an argument before that this looks suspiciously like a menorah. Um I'm Sure, that somebody has to have made that association before. I'd like to track that down. I think that's worth uh, some more looking at uh, yeah. because that would be that would be another thing that would be uh, interesting to find. If maybe the menorah is actually a conflation of the source of light that was used in the temple with uh, another way to kind of get rid of the Asherah pole would be to conflate it with um, whatever is offering the lampstand, whatever is offering light in the temple. Yeah. But that's not that's not I haven't uh formalized that argument. That's just a curiosity that I've noted. So don't um don't, don't go, go, don't go spreading that, I, that around. Yeah, those are saying I made that claim. I'm just thinking <laughs> I think there that would be interesting to look at. If yeah. 
it, it it's it makes sense. It makes I mean it it's tree like certainly in its in its visual uh nature. Yeah. And so to return to the origin of the of the segment, the the steely, um we think of divine images as something that has been rejected by the Bible and that is aberrant and that is, uh, you know, that's for those weirdos. But we do it today with cemeteries that have stelae in them. And, and you know, if, if there's a deceased loved one there, it, is, it feels natural to us to go talk to it as kind of a medium or a representation of their agency, their presence. Uh, or their person. And so um, we're not so far removed from what was going on anciently. And I would argue that in the Bible, they did not so much reject the use of idols, of divine images, so much as they just renegotiated them and decided instead of doing it this way, we're going to do it this other way, a way that many people still do without knowing that that's exactly what they're doing. So there's an argument to make that treating your Bible like something that brings God's presence is uh, a derivation of ancient stelae, ancient standing stones used as divine images. I love it. That is fascinating. <laughs> well, I will leave it at that. I love, I love this conversation. You and I are going to go and have a little bit more conversation on some of these topics yeah. for our patrons. So uh, just... This is, this is a now a thing that we are doing every week. Uh, so anyone who wants to hear more from us in a more in a less formal way, uh, please think about becoming a patron of the show. You can go to patreon.com slash data over dogma. And, uh, and for at this point, uh, any amount uh, of, <laughs> of donation, we will, we, will, we will give you access to the patrons only content. For those of you who aren't coming over to, to Patreon, that's fine. Uh, we love you anyway. Thank you so much uh, for listening. If you have anything you'd like to say to us, you can write into us. Uh, the, the email address is contact at dataoverdogmapod.com. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.